1: What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true.
0: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Welcome to Stuff You
1: Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello
0: and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So Holly, yeah, did you know that according to the American Medical Association... of physicians in America today are women. I did not know that. That seems like a smaller number than I thought. Yeah. Like, I was surprised by the smallness of that number.
1: I am, too. I mean, when I think about most of the GPs that, like, I've seen in the last, I don't know, decade, Mm -hmm. even in the listings, I remember searching for them at various points. Yeah, It seemed like there was either a more even or even tipped more towards women. But maybe that's just been a coincidence of my providers. Yeah.
0: Well, and I remember earlier this year when my uh, when my general, my GP, was on maternity leave, <laughs> the person answering the phone at the practice said, well, our other female doctor is. And I was like, what do you mean our other female doctor? <laughs> there are <were> like nine <laughs> doctors in this practice. Uh, I've always been fortunate enough that if I want a woman doctor, I can find one. Yeah. Like there are definitely places where people who want to see a woman doctor can only find male doctors. Uh, But before the 1850s, there were basically zero women doctors in the United States. And Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell was the first woman to graduate from an American medical school and also the first woman listed in Great Britain's medical register. She really paved the way for the women who came after her. So she didn't just become a doctor herself. She tirelessly worked uh, toward greater access for medical education and work in medicine for women. And she was also a social reformer. And uh, she's who we're going to talk about today. And this is not one of those stories where someone had a childhood dream of pursuing a career that was for some reason closed to them. She had no interest in medicine whatsoever as a child. And this was a career that, you know, came to her later in her life when she was a a young adult. She actually started out in a career path that was much more available to women at the time, which was that she was a teacher. And she used her work as a teacher to kind of get her foot in the door for being a doctor.
1: Pretty cool. It it is funny to think about because even today, most people that want to be doctors know it at a really early age and yes. their kind of education is focused from a very young age often not always but most of the time pretty you know. frequently yeah so it's kind of interesting to think like at some point in her teaching career she went mm doctor yeah we will get to that <laughs> But first, uh, we'll do the basics on her beginnings. So she was born in Bristol, England in 1821, and her parents were Hannah Lane and Samuel Blackwell, and they had met when they were Sunday school teachers together.
0: Her family was a rather large one. She grew up with four sisters and four brothers, and she also had two other brothers who died when they were babies.
1: Uh, this was a deeply religious congregationalist family, as well as being socially very liberal. And they were also abolitionist, which was a problematic sentiment for the family. Elizabeth's father was a prosperous sugar refiner and the sugar he refined had been farmed, of course, using slave labor.
0: Yeah. They were in a very, that's a conflicted sort yeah, of situation. They were in a knowingly, uh, yucky situation yeah. where they were, they were vehemently against this practice. And yet that practice was what was supporting their family. So they did actually a lot of work with Quakers trying to find alternate uh, sources of sugar to refine that was not farmed with slave labor. Uh, they moved away from working in that industry also. Um, their religion, though, meant that the children couldn't attend Church of England schools. So they mostly learned at home under the care of governesses and tutors. And all of the children were really eager students. They spent most of their pocket money buying books. Um, they were also, they weren't just stay indoors bookish people. Although they were that, they were also very fond of walking and playing outdoors.
1: And the family moved to the United States in 1832 when Elizabeth was 11. Her father's sugar refinery had burned down and he had wanted to take a more active part in the fight against slavery. And the children had all given up sugar because of the use of slavery in its farming and production.
0: So, yes, ultimately, they they stopped playing a part in the practice that they all abhorred. So once they arrived in the United States, the family started out in New York and Jersey City. And this is when Elizabeth and her school aged siblings started going to regular schools for the first time. The whole family became really involved in the uh, fight for abolition also. And William Lloyd Garrison, who was the man behind the anti-slavery newspaper The Liberator, became a family friend and a frequent guest in their home.
1: And when Elizabeth was 17, the family moved to Ohio. A few months after they arrived in Cincinnati, though, her father died. They had already become far less affluent than they had been in England, and of course, before their refinery burned down. But this left the family without any kind of financial support.
0: Elizabeth and her two older sisters started a school for girls, and their oldest brother got a job in the mayor's office. Uh, together, the four of them supported the family until the youngest children were also old enough to work.
1: And the sisters also became politically active in causes other than abolition, campaigning for greater access to education for women and girls, uh, primarily. And they also joined the Episcopal Church, and they developed relationships with transcendentalists who had moved to Cincinnati from New England.
0: They kept their school running until 1842, when enough of the younger brothers had gone into business that they didn't need quite so much money. And Elizabeth continued to teach privately. That year, she was invited to run a school for girls that was being started in Kentucky.
1: And she accepted the position, and she moved, and that was a very difficult time for her. She'd been kind of sheltered in her life up to this point. And Kentucky was a slave state, and living there was really her first exposure to real-world slavery, this thing that they had in their family been talking about uh, being against for years and years. And the town that she lived in was also uh, much poorer and less developed than anywhere else she had lived. And Elizabeth was expected to begin teaching pretty much the moment she arrived. So a very stressful transition.
0: Yeah, she wound up teaching there for three years before going back to Ohio, joining her family in a town called Walnut Hills, which was at that point outside of Cincinnati. It became part of Cincinnati itself a few years later in 1869.
1: And when she returned to Cincinnati, Elizabeth was about 24. And the idea of being a doctor had still not even entered her mind at this point. And while she really liked to study, she was primarily focused on history, metaphysics, German, and music. But she wanted to do something more and something difficult, though she was not sure what that thing was.
0: This is a trait I kind of love about her. I think she's kind of like me in that she always wanted to tilt at the windmill. was <laughs> looking for another windmill. And... The the idea to study medicine actually came from a friend of hers who was dying. And in her writing, Elizabeth doesn't specifically say what her friend was dying of. We can kind of intuit that it had something to do with her reproductive system. But in Elizabeth's words, its, uh, quote, delicate nature made the methods of treatment a constant suffering to her. So Elizabeth's friend thought that if she had been able to have a woman doctor instead of a man doctor... Uh, that she would have been spared the most uncomfortable and upsetting parts of her treatment. So Elizabeth's friend thought that a, a great next thing for Elizabeth to do, to do would be to become a doctor
1: herself. And Elizabeth's response to her friend's suggestion was along the lines of, what? No, I hate bodies and everything about them, and I also hate medical textbooks. Uh And in her own life, she also hated being sick, and she found any kind of illness to be sort of shameful. I identify with all of these things. Right. Like... <laughs> I could never do anything medical and illness angers and frustrates me and I feel weird shame over it. Yeah, that's <laughs> I don't understand this, but I, I acknowledge and recognize it.
0: Yeah. Well, and at the same time, Elizabeth could not get this thought of being a doctor out of her mind. She she had been so much like, nope, that uh, not for me. Uh, but the idea just kept kind of picking at her. Finally, a couple of things tipped the scale in favor of actually going to medical school.
1: And the first was that she described herself as falling in love a little too easily. But she didn't like the idea of what marriage would mean to her life. Uh, she concluded that if she became a doctor, she would never have to get married because a doctor's life and a traditional wife's life were so incompatible with each other. Yeah. That is sort of a wonderful logic.
0: I do. <laughs> she kind of softened on her view about marriage, although she never got married. She kind of. Kind of eased back on this idea that like being a wife was terrible later in her life, but at this point she was like, you know what? If I were a doctor too busy for that, I wouldn't have to get married. (laughs) Uh, it also became, in her words, a moral struggle. She really thought the world would be a lot better if women were allowed to play a more active part in all aspects of it. One of those things being practicing medicine. Um, She also wanted to reclaim the word female physician, which was at this point in history, really a euphemism for abortionist.
1: And Elizabeth started asking doctors that her family knew about how to become a doctor herself. Uh, The idea of a woman doctor, though, was so unheard of that she didn't really know where to start. And everyone she spoke with seemed to think that it was both a good idea and also basically impossible. Uh, Medical schools were for men only, and they were extremely expensive. So
0: Elizabeth started trying to raise money to study medicine in Paris, which uh, Paris comes up over and over again in this story as sort of this place that was so off the rails in terms of morality that maybe they would not have a problem with a woman studying medicine. Um, (laughs) She thought it might be more acceptable for her to pursue an education there, but the cost was just enormous. So she accepted a teaching job in North Carolina, hoping to save money uh, to pay her way into a uh, school in the United States. The school's principal had also been a doctor, and he was going to tutor her in addition to her doing her teaching duties. Uh, all of this was going to happen in Asheville, which is my favorite place.
1: Yeah, uh did you know that when you selected her or was it one of those magical accidents? I did not. Yeah. And it was one of those
0: things where I was reading her autobiography and I suddenly was like, I know where she's talking about. (laughs) I got very excited.
1: Uh, And the school that she went to in Asheville actually disbanded in 1846. And at that point, she moved to Charleston, South Carolina. And there she studied with another doctor named Samuel H. Dickinson. And she also taught music at a school that was run by someone that Dickinson knew. She kind of had a lot of favory connections going on to make ends meet and study.
0: Yeah, there was definitely a a combination of her working as a teacher while someone nearby helped her uh, learn about medicine. Before we get into her official... Start of actual medical school. Would you like to take a moment away from our story of this woman who love to learn to talk about our new sponsor?
1: Privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people
0: to hear my voice and just forget their troubles.
1: Experience the music and her story.
0: Know like this. I ain't no spy skill.
1: Like never before. That's
0: my daughter.
1: That's my Amy. Big screen.
0: I wanna be remembered for just being me.
1: Amy Winehouse, back to black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters, May 17th.
0: Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping. To America's first female M.D. That sounds grand. So by 1847, Elizabeth finally felt like she had enough money for medical school. And so she went to Philadelphia, which was at this point pretty much the capital of medical instruction in the United States. She applied to four medical colleges in Philadelphia and she kept uh, studying anatomy in a private school.
1: And her journals from this period describe being laughed at, being dismissed, told to try the New England medical schools, or maybe the ones in Paris. There was even a Philadelphia medical professor who told her that while personally he was completely in favor of women studying medicine, it was so impossible that the only way it was ever going to happen was if she disguised herself as a man. So he was like, no, I'm cool, but you're going to have to wear a mustache. Right. (laughs) Just so weird. In her words, But neither
0: the advice to go to Paris nor the suggestion of disguise tempted me for a moment. It was to my mind a moral crusade on which I had entered, a course of justice and common sense, and it must be pursued in the light of day and with public sanction in order to accomplish its end.
1: That is a woman who has found her windmill. Uh-huh. Uh, and after she exhausted her options for medical schools in both New York and Philadelphia, she got a list of smaller medical colleges known as, quote, country schools throughout the Northeast. And she chose the 12 most promising. And uh, she finally got a letter from Geneva University, which is in western New York. And her application had been presented to the faculty, which had not really been in favor of admitting her, but had presented her application to the students, and so she later received the following document. It said, At a meeting
0: of the entire medical class of Geneva Medical College held this day, October twentieth, eighteen forty seven, the following resolutions were unanimously adopted. One, resolved that one of the radical principles of a Republican government is the universal education of both sexes, that to every branch of scientific education, the door should be open equally to all, that the application of Elizabeth Blackwell to become a member of our class meets our entire approbation. And in extending our unanimous invitation, we pledge ourselves that no conduct of ours shall cause her to regret her attendance at this institution. Two... Resolved that a copy of these proceedings be signed by the chairman and transmitted to Elizabeth Blackwell. Doesn't that sound great? It really does. It was not actually uh, the there. There were some shenanigans. There was some really good writing. It was some great writing. So, but the thing is, uh, the faculty was not super into this idea at all. And a lot of the students who voted on it thought that it was a prank being played on them by a rival college. Oh, dear. Yeah, we'll <laughs> talk about that more in a second. But, you know, long story short, on she November got she got in. Uh, and on November 4th of 1847, she left Philadelphia to go to Geneva and start medical school.
1: And overall, the other medical students at Geneva welcomed her. They were courteous and friendly. They would save her a seat for lectures. And most of the time, they treated her as a friend and a colleague. And she described the behavior of her male classmates during the two years that she studied as that of, quote, true Christian gentlemen. Later on, Elizabeth learned that some of the students had thought her application was a hoax or a prank being played on them by a rival college, as Tracy said. But once they found themselves with an actual female student, They did, for the most part, live up to what they had resolved in that letter.
0: Yeah, I think that's where they kind of rise above the fact that they thought someone was playing a trick on them. Uh, Her teachers mostly treated her fairly also, although there was some level of consternation about how to handle anatomy lectures on the reproductive system when there was a woman in the room. So occasionally she was asked to sit out for particular demonstrations, and some of her anatomical studies were conducted in private, Along with four of the quote, steadier male students. And they pretty much treated her in these lectures like an older sister.
1: And the town of Geneva, on the other hand, seemed to see her as something of an aberration. She was stared at in the street, and she gradually learned that people believed she was either immoral or insane. Yeah, they were pretty much waiting for
0: her to reach some kind of tipping point and go on a rampage through the town in some way. Like the, the town did not she trust her. She was just going to snap. She also sometimes did have trouble with the distaste for the human body that we talked about earlier. Uh, She had always had this. She was not really sure how she was going to deal with it in medical school. And she wrote in her journal about some dissections that she could just barely stand to witness. But this was not unique to her at all. Some of her male classmates were just as overcome by them as she was. This was not anything that had anything to do with her sex.
1: No, and I think even today when you hear stories from friends that have attended medical school, there is a lot of like half the people were sick at this lecture kind of yeah. thing. That's not uncommon. Between her first and second years of school, she went back to Philadelphia, where she arranged to study in one of the hospital wards at Blockley Almshouse, which was later known as Philadelphia General Hospital. And in addition to working with Philadelphia's poor, she also worked with Irish immigrants displaced by the potato famine, many of whom had typhus. And she actually wound up writing about typhus for her thesis.
0: Well, they called it ship fever then. Because everybody got it on the ship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, This was one of the places where she really started uh, realizing that a lot of the problems that people were having in terms of sickness were coming straight from hygiene. And and she became very focused on good hygiene and good sanitation as being extremely important to people's health. Um, So while her classmates at Geneva were pretty much supportive of the fact that she was there, the doctors at the almshouse really were not. A lot of the residents would just stop working when she came into the room. Um, and then they stopped writing patients diagnoses on their charts to basically make it harder for her. She was she wasn't there as a doctor. She was there as an observer. And they were basically trying to make it so she didn't really have a lot to observe.
1: I'm just wondering how that would figure into, for example, your Hippocratic Oath, where you're supposed to be doing everything you can to take care of a person. And then you let this petty stuff get in the way.
0: That's a great question. Uh,
1: Elizabeth returned to Geneva after the summer and she graduated at the top of her class in 1849, becoming the first woman to earn an M.D. from an American medical school. And before we talk about what happened after medical school, let's
0: take another moment and talk about our other sponsor today. That sounds fabulous, too.
1: privileges and start earning points toward your next day find a stay for any you book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true focus features presents back to black
0: i want people to hear my voice and just forget their
1: troubles experience the music and her story
0: know like this i ain't no spy girl
1: like never before that's
0: my daughter that's my Amy.
1: Big screen.
0: I want to be remembered for just being me.
1: Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
0: Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? So to get back to Dr. Blackwell, as she is now, Dr. Blackwell, she wanted to become, in her words, the first lady surgeon in the world. And she realized that the education she was going to need to do this was still really not open to her in the United States. But fortunately, some of her cousins who lived in England had been visiting the U.S. and they invited her to go back to Europe with them.
1: And so she went abroad, studying medicine in London and Paris for two years. And she also studied uh, midwifery while there at La Maternité, which is a school for training midwives. This was both very difficult and very rewarding. She had
0: very little privacy. It's kind of a near monastic experience. And because of the nature of midwifery, she did not get very much sleep. She did, though, get an enormous amount of hands-on experience in a very condensed time frame. And a lot of this influenced her practice later, uh, and it also kept hammering home on the fact that hygiene and sanitation were lacking in the world, which needed to be fixed.
1: And unfortunately, uh, this work and these revelations are also what derailed her from her plans to become a surgeon. One day, while she was treating a baby that had an eye infection caused by gonorrhea, some of the water that she was using splashed into her own eye, which became infected as well. She asked for permission to leave until it got better. And at first she was denied. But then when Monsieur Blot, the intern, realized what was happening, he talked to the chief physician who examined her and told her to stop work immediately and be treated. This effect on her eyesight
0: was pretty much immediate. Uh, she she couldn't see uh, very well out of it. It was extremely inflamed. in addition to the fact that she couldn't see very well, it uh, like it was disturbing to other people to look at. Uh-huh. It was just a very uh, frightening looking infection. But Dr. Blackwell was hopeful that this was temporary and that with treatment it would get better. She continued to have flare-ups though, and ultimately the eye had to be removed and replaced with a glass one and that pretty much made a surgical career impossible.
1: She decided to return to London in 1850, and a cousin wrote to introduce her to the St. Bartholomew's Hospital. And while studying there, she met and worked with the famous Florence Nightingale, the founder of modern nursing.
0: They were pretty much contemporaries. We could have a whole episode on their relationship with each other. (laughs) Uh, They did not always see eye to eye completely on things. Um, So Dr. Blackwell wanted to practice in London. But she didn't have a lot of money. She didn't have a huge network of family and friends to support her. She ultimately went back to the United States hoping that she could save enough money to go back to England in 10 or 15 years.
1: And she went to New York, and she started a long and uphill battle of trying to build her own practice. And while the students at Geneva had welcomed her, the medical community was deeply reluctant to associate with her in any way. The first people she actually became friends with were Quakers, and the Quaker community helped her find locations where she could practice medicine and deliver lectures on women's health. And she described her practice in those years as a very Quaker one. There's a sort of a thread of different religious influences that tracks through
0: her whole life with this being sort of the most recent evolution. Her Quaker faith. Yeah. She did not have very much medical companionship because the other doctors were just really suspicious of a woman practicing medicine. And so she didn't have much opportunity to learn from other doctors either. Patients also resisted the idea of seeing a woman, and it was such a lonely existence overall that in October of 1854, she took in a seven-year-old orphaned girl who she later, later adopted.
1: And that same year, Dr. Blackwell's sister, Emily, graduated from the Medical College of Cleveland. She went on to study in Europe as well, and when she returned, the sisters started a dispensary together.
0: It was clear that the doctors, Blackwell, were pretty much going to have to make their own opportunities for their practice and for furthering their own medical education. So the two of them collaborated with Dr. Marie Zakrzewska, who and they together opened the New York Infirmary for Women and Children in 1857. They basically rented a house and then outfitted it for their own purposes This wasn't just a medical facility, it was also a place that other women who were doctors and wanted to become doctors could find additional work in the training that Dr. Blackwell herself had not had a lot of success finding in
1: the United States. And this, as you can imagine, was another uphill struggle. In an annual report, uh, it listed all of the objections that the women had encountered. Uh, they were told that no one would let a house for the purpose that female doctors should be looked upon with so much suspicion that the police would interfere that if deaths occurred, their death certificates would not be recognized that they would be resorted to by classes and persons whom it would be an insult to be called upon to deal with. As my personal aside, I once again have a Hippocratic oath question mark there. Uh, that without men as resident physicians, they would not be able to control the patients, that if any accident occurred, not only the medical profession, but the public would blame the trustees for supporting such an undertaking. And finally, that they would never be able to collect money enough for so unpopular an effort.
0: Giant windmill. They did it anyway. (laughs) Their infirmary eventually flourished. They provided medical care and instruction, uh, and they taught poor women how to care for their children. And this really went on until the start of the Civil War. At that point, Dr. Blackwell founded the Women's Central Association of Relief, or the WCAR, which focused on training women to be nurses for injured soldiers and on collecting medical supplies.
1: In 1867, so after the war ended, the infirmary opened its own medical college. And by this time, access to medical education and practice was vastly different for women in the United States. But it still had a really long way to go. Many medical programs either admitted women to their programs or were exclusively for women, although these were generally inferior to men's colleges. Hospitals and other facilities were also more open to employing women, although the opportunities were still not really numerous. Uh, And there were still schools that stridently worked against women as students, including her alma mater, which rejected Dr. Blackwell's sister, which I find fascinating.
0: Yeah, it seems like like that worked out great. We're never doing it again. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Blackwell eventually returned to England again in 1869. And what she was hoping to do was to stay there a long time and practice medicine. She did wind up living there for the rest of her life, but her health started to decline not long after
1: she arrived. She was forced to take a lot of time off to recuperate. And by the 1870s, she stopped practicing entirely, though she did continue to campaign for opportunities for women in medicine, and she continued to work towards social reform.
0: She died in 1910, a couple of years after a pretty bad fall had had really caused her a lot of uh, physical and uh, mental issues.
1: And at that point, she had paved the way for a whole new career path for women. She really
0: had. Uh, We we haven't really talked about a lot of... The actual medicine that she was practicing, this, some of that is sort of sawbones territory if you haven't given <laughs> that <laughs> podcast a listen yet. For example, when she like when her own eye infection was being treated, uh, which is like this is an infection that was pretty common at the time. It was it was something that would happen to babies when they were born to a woman who had gonorrhea. Mm-hmm. Um, like the treatment involved leeches Ooh. on her head. Uh not very effective at treating an, an eye infection caused by gonorrhea. So it also
1: kind of gross.
0: Yeah. There was a lot of stuff that was kind of gross. And a, a lot of the medicine that was being taught at that point is actually pretty not recognized as medicine today. But like that, that was the state of medicine and she helped make it a place where women also could learn and practice. Um, we did. We also didn't talk a whole lot about all of her other social reform efforts that went on. Uh, In conjunction with her medical practice and afterwards, that could be a whole other episode. There was a lot of that, too.
1: Well, well, while we think about whether or not that will become an episode, do you want to read some listener mail for us? I would. I have listener mail that's
0: from Victoria. And she says, Hi, ladies, I've just finished listening to your Jane Austen podcast. And you mentioned a history book that she wrote before penning Eleanor and Marianne. Had to email you because I think I actually own a copy of this very book. The inside cover states that she wrote it in 1791, which would be six years before Pride and Prejudice, when she was 16. It's very short, only about 15 pages, but utterly delightful, and I think you would love it if you haven't read it already. I particularly adore the title, which is The History of England by a Partial, Prejudiced, and Ignorant Historian. (laughs) (laughs) And then it says there will be very few dates in this history which is well, I feel that way. page history. I'm yeah. not sure how deep you could go. I actually feel that way about our episodes. Sometimes there are very few dates in our episodes sometimes because it just becomes date soup and yeah. the there are other things that we can talk about besides a whole long list of dates. Um, so yes, Victoria, uh you can find this on the internet also.
1: Uh, she she says us- <laughs> if you want the very brief and very biased <laughs> history of England.
0: Which is pretty great. Um so yes, we will put a link to that in, in our show notes. I I pretty quickly was able to dig it up on the internet cool uh, once Victoria was like, I've read this. And I was like, you know, probably find that easy. Uh and then she signs off as Vicky, so perhaps I should have called Vicky that at the beginning.
1: Perhaps.
0: Thank you very much for writing to us, Vicky. You may have sounded like a disappointed mom to begin with. I am often a disappointed mom when I <laughs> when I mess myself up somehow. Uh, so anyway, thank you Vicki for writing to us. If you would like to write to us, you can. We're at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash mist history and on Twitter at mist Our Tumblr is mist history dot tumblr dot com. Our Pinterest is pinterest dot com slash mist in history. If you're wondering why we've used mist in history so many times for so many different aliases, it is to match our brand new website. Yes, it's all sparkly and fresh. It is called www.mistinhistory.com. Yay! You can listen to every single episode we've ever done on the website. It's much easier to search. Our blog? Yeah, we are slowly... We're working on the tagging. Still. Yes, we're, we're going to be working on tagging episodes for a while, I think. But once they are all tagged, there will be many, many things that you can click. Yeah. If you want to see everything that's about shipwrecks or everything that's about pirates or everything that's about uh, sad royal childhoods <laughs> or various other things that we talk about often. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, that is MissedInHistory.com if you want to come pay us a visit. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our website. Just put the word Blackwell in our search bar and you will find How Ladies Aid Societies Worked, which talks about uh, the ladies aid societies that flourished during this period in history. And there's a page on Dr. Blackwell and her work during the Civil War. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or write to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit LambdaLegal.org. That's LambdaLegal.org.
1: I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual.